Hello and welcome to What Are You Laughing At 12, the special first anniversary podcast brought to you by the British Comedy Guide. My name's Dave Cohen and as the Edinburgh Fringe approaches, hundreds of hopeful performers are, even as we speak, hastily writing their brand new shows. Although the creativity really begins at the end of August when it comes to explain to the bank manager where £10,000 just went. Joining me today are two very special guests, a man who I'm sure is looking forward to Edinburgh, where he'll be premiering the latest in a long line of hugely successful one-man shows, stand-up comedy legend, star of several series of his own TV show, lawbreaker and lawmaker, Mark Thomas. Hello. Hello, Mark. Lovely to have you here. Nice also, to be here. Yep. Good. And we're very lucky also to have one of the busiest people in comedy, a producer who in recent years has enjoyed considerable success as the brains behind Armstrong and Miller. BCG favourite comedy show of 2011, Horrible Histories, and most recently, the best new sitcom in ages, Dead Boss. Hello to Caroline Norris. Hello. And chipping in from time to time, the sturdy rock that sits zen-like amid the blustery waters of the British Comedy Guide, listening out for grammatical errors and unsubstantiated criticism of Allo Hello, it's Aaron Brown. Hello. Hi there. Hello, everybody. Well... Normally we uh, talk about news and various programmes um, that, that have been on and other other such items, but um, we've got a packed uh, show to do today. So the only uh, the main news item that I'd like to mention, really, of course, Eric Syke, one of the great original writer performers. He died um, earlier this month, and really quite a remarkable uh, man. Wrote and performed uh, many shows. Wrote a lot of the uh, best goon shows, and of course his uh, sitcom with uh, Hattie Jakes, where they played. Uh, Unlikely a brother and sister pairing, but it uh, it worked. Identical twins, in fact. <laughs> right. Is that was that actually yes. the uh, premise? Ah, oh, so yes. in fact, Schwarzenegger and DeVito were cribbing <laughs> yeah. from Eric Sykes. Indeed, all those, they were all those years ago. Ah. I like the fact. Do you know? I think we should try and bring some kind of posthumous case. That we <laughs> should do plagiarism. We should have copyright breach. Imagine trying to well, take uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to court. I mean, one one of the things that uh, Eric Sykes said was about um he said uh he said i think everybody who goes into comedy should do national service uh, it wasn't one of those kind of young people today they should all join the army best thing for but what he was saying was that his training was uh being able to be with a bunch of fellow writers and performers and just put on loads and loads of shows that it didn't really matter whether they were failed or were they any good or not they they sort of learnt their trade it's a sort of a bit like Mark when we were starting out. I mean, do well, you think that was that? I have some sympathy for his idea. Actually, I think there's a, there's an interesting tranche of British comics that came out of a direct experience of either World War Two or you know national service. And there's a whole load of performers and writers. You know, you've got to remember people like Arnold Wesker. You know, who are playwrights who just write incredible works about their experience there. Um, as well as you have people like Frankie Howard. You had the whole Entsa Brigade. And then you had, on top of that, you had a whole load of people. Look, Spike Milligan, who's who's obviously, you know, an obvious choice of someone who is influenced enormously by their wartime experience, and and so those those are really key figures in the British comedy scene. And actually, yeah, there, I, I I don't really have much of a problem with occasionally going. No, they should bring national service in anyway, just as a as a matter of devilment. But I think there's an interesting thing that they actually got a chance to try things out and learn their craft in a way that didn't mean they have to be brilliant now or they would have dropped forever. Uh, and that you, you had an area where you could experiment and play and meet other like-minded people. Now, when 
I think when we first started going, I started performing in 1985, which was just shortly after you. I think you got going a year or two before. Yeah, yeah. And um, certainly there was the experience that actually you had uh, the youth employment programmes. So you could actually, you could be on the dole, you could sign up, and for a year you got paid, but you could find other work. And so mm. you, you actually got a chance to go round clubs and, and you know, really poorly played, paid venues and learn a little bit about what you were doing. We, we owe our careers to Margaret Thatcher, really, don't we? And the, her creation of benefits culture, really, to, to pay for unemployment. I've always seen that certain parts of the youth employment scheme to be a form of, of somewhat obscure arts funding. <laughs> it worked. It did work, yeah. And we were, and there were some pretty, pretty and, awful... And musicians as well, you know, because, yeah. you know, what do you do if you're, if you're a musician? You, do, you know, back then it would be you do your apprenticeship in your bedroom learning how to play the guitar... And um, actually, why not get paid to do that? Mm. Or if you play guitar badly, learn to be a comedian, which is uh, the route that I went down. <laughs> but um, another thing I want to mention about uh, um, Eric Sykes as uh, of being uh, hearing challenged myself, uh, he was uh, completely deaf for most of his life. So uh, yeah, let's hear it for the deaf guys. He and... also did. I remember my dad going to see Eric Sykes and Jimmy Jewell. I think it was in Who's Afraid of the Big Mad Mouse, if, I, if I've remembered it correctly mm. and he said there was a whole section where Jimmy George just came to the front of the stage and talked to the audience mm. and said he's deaf he can't hear a thing he's all reliant on watching my neck muscles yeah, and yeah. he goes watch this and Sykes <laughs> came in with the line and they'd obviously <laughs> rehearsed it but it was just brilliant yeah. you know the way that my dad described it, it sounded really really well exciting. you know he had perfect eyesight but those glasses that he wore they weren't glasses they didn't have any glass in them they were just giant hearing aids <laughs> that's, tr- that's true that's absolutely true so uh so very sad uh team go great great man he was also you know you've got to remember people like him were those kind of they're, they're amazing writers for working with the goons which were the really the influential comedy at that time it was that that they were the mold breakers of it mm. yeah and you know incredible you know i mean obviously with the exception of harry seacom who turned out to be rather bad in, in the long run of it but, you know, Spike and Peter Sellers are just amazing. Even mm. Michael Bentine. Do you remember his potty time? Mm, mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've mentioned a rather obscure... This is when mm. I was a boy. No, I remember when television. Oh, you remember, brilliant, thank goodness. I thought I was going to have to explain that sometimes television was in just black and white. And, and... I'm older than I look. Yeah. Oh, OK. No, Aaron's the one, actually. Yeah. I mean, they probably had about 85 channels when you were born. Uh, I'm not sure that many. But... I remember BBC Two starting up and that being like a sort of... This is this is the end of the world as we know it, isn't it? Three channels now on the telly. God, so too much, too much choice. Three channels. What are we going to do? So whereas now we just spend our evening sitting with the button, going, "No, oh, this is crap. This is crap. This is crap. This is crap. <laughs> yeah. This is crap." Oh, I'll watch this for thirty seconds. No. Oh, oh look, Die Hard's on again. This yeah. is crap. This <laughs> is crap. This is crap. Mm. Hang on, I've just got to tweet how crap it is. All right, okay, <laughs> back to it. Um, now, what I want to talk about one of the main thing with with you mark that i really want to talk about is this uh new show now it's been uh it's been called a, a departure for you this uh show bravo figaro um it's been called a departure by critics so you know but actually it's uh it's about your dad and about opera isn't it and yeah. in fact i remember the, th- the two most notable routines that i remember when you started out the first one, which I could probably still quote word for word, is your routine about opera, and also routine about your dad, which I won't quote word for word because uh, there might be some young horrible histories fans listening. And the, your dad's creativity with swearing was what I remember. The uh, no, he was. He was. I actually mm. described him as a show as as being like a he swore like a jazz bebopper. 
So it <laughs> improvised around a common theme, compounding words, mm. and just this freeform flow of consciousness and rage. But and t- you remember yeah. it because he came around and fixed your house. Well, uh, what I remember about your dad, uh, he, he is, he's the best builder that I ever had, your dad. He do you know, that's a really great thing. Thank you. It's true. He do. And he used to, and the thing, one of the things that I really remember about him as well was he had this, uh, these ladders, which he'd had for about 20 or 25 years, and they looked as new as the day he got them, but they obviously they looked like a, 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 a 1950s or 1960s work. But he just... He, took so much care he so, so, so much love over his the, the, his tools as it were the ladders um, are just this is incredibly boring for listeners but I'll tell them anyway the ladders were these beautiful things that had brass fittings and they had clips that were really beautifully oiled so when you pulled up the rungs would it would action it so the rung would catch when you pulled it down and a series of sort of roofing ladders that would just we had to varnish them every year that's what we did so we'd have to mm. sand it and varnish it so that there'd be this really beautiful... They are. They were beautiful things. Mm. But t- tell us about the show, anyway. Well, the show was... Um, my dad, as as you know, Dave, he was quite a, a ruffian. And uh, he was working-class chap, leaves school at 14, no education, discovers a love of opera, uh, which is, you know, quite a thing. It's something he shouldn't really have done, and, and you know, according to determinism and politics and class. But he did. And um, he, I, we had a very problematic relationship over the years. And um, as a kid, he used to play this stuff. He used to take opera and play it on the roof. You know, if we'd be working on a roof, he'd take opera and cassettes and stuff like that and we'd sing along, which obviously is, is hugely humiliating. You know, as, you know, I'm standing there and, I'm, you know, I can quote you endless lyrics from Clash albums. Why on earth would I want to be here? Um, so it was... And what happened was he... He developed um, an illness called PSP, which is progressive supranuclear palsy, which is uh, a degenerative neurological disorder that just weakens all the muscles and everything, so it collapses in and then goes blind and you can't swallow, and he, there's dementia that goes along with that. And so we kind of lost him, really. Now we lost mm-hmm. him. He just kind of, his character, his personality, who he was physically, mentally, just kind of went, and he became this husk. And... As he started to go, I found myself um, listening to opera as a way of trying to find a ground to contact, you know, to communicate with him on. And uh, it ended up, I did a thing for Radio 4 on Inheritance Tracks and talked about a piece of music that... I did the first ever Inheritance Tracks and I talked about Figaro's Aria in the Barbara Seville, which is a rather lovely... And it's beautiful stuff. It's really, it's really cocky and swaggering, and it's basically singing about how great it is to be a barber and be him. You know, this is a lovely thing. But uh, it was my, I inherited it from my dad, and so I did this thing. And anyway, someone from right, from the Royal Opera House heard it, got in contact, and said, "We want to commission you to do a story to do a show about opera." Uh, and I agreed to do it on condition they lent me opera singers. And I took these opera singers down to my dad's bungalow in Bournemouth, which is where he lives, and we put on a concert in his living room. And the show's all about that, really. It's about that story. And was he, I mean, was he in a state that he could, um, that that he he understood what was happening, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope so, because I went to a lot of trouble. (laughs) And I'd just be bloody selfish if you didn't. Typical. No, he 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 did. He was. It was a really interesting thing because he was very alert, 
and was actually quite lucid. And we did interviews, we did audio interviews with my mum and my dad after that. And the, the audio gets played in throughout the show, so we have conversations with my dad and my mum and my brother. Um, and it's, it's uh, I suppose it is a departure in the fact that it's a very personal story, but it's, all of it's personal. You know, everything that you do is sort of personal to a degree. Your family's the first template that you get, which is how you deal with all the big mm-hmm. things that you encounter in your life of love and trust and betrayal and rebellion and obedience and all right. of that. Mm-hmm. Sounds brilliant. God bless you. When's it on? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's in Edinburgh. <laughs> so, yes. Well, it's also, I notice uh, it's in Edinburgh and it's uh, you're doing a tour. Uh, and we're going back to the Royal Opera House, which is yeah. really exciting. I, and I was sort of spotting some of the look through the tour list, and it's uh, it's not your standard uh, stand-up comics tour list. I mean, some of the some of the places are, but in fact, the, the very fact you are in in Edinburgh, you are in fact playing at the the Travis Theatre. I know it's great. Right. Travis is fantastic because they have the, I they I normally spend a lot of time there actually because it's a really good venue and really good stuff that they have on there. So it's kind of quite. Nice to be there. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, I, I got, I, I did the the last show I did at the National Theatre, and that was kind of like, you do sort of feel that little bit of kudos where you just go, all right, it's not a stadia, and I haven't got a DVD out, <laughs> right? But I'm doing all right. That's like when Dave and I got to put horrible histories on at the Royal Albert Hall. That was the feeling. Of what a nice yeah. thing to do. Yeah, it was amazing. I got to ring up the cast and say, would you like to be on stage at the Royal Albert Hall? Yes, please. Mm. Okay, that's. <laughs> yeah. Now Let's you promise me Sting <laughs> isn't going to be around. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, seeing three hundred a choir of three hundred kids singing yeah. some of our songs was, you know, that was kind of a, a high point career-wise for me. I really felt like a very, very special thing, and it? it's sort of, but it, it, it's it's kind of establishment type it's, it's like you've arrived as part of an establishment albeit a kind of alternative establishment and uh, yeah you, 27 you, years of struggle <laughs> <laughs> do you ever I mean I know you've been up to Edinburgh a lot over the years I mean do, do you have any urge I mean I'm in, in the 80s I mean the those of you listening were, may may not know that Mark was uh, there, there was a period in the sort of late eighties when uh, basically the three Marks, as they were effectively, effectively was yourself, Mark Steele, and uh, Mark Hurst, hmm. who were the sort of three stand-up comedians who were completely the stand-up comedians of the time. And you know, really, the only difference between then and now is that comedians weren't playing 3,000 seater 6,000 seater halls at that time but you probably would have been if that sort of thing had been around uh, do you ever have a kind of urge to go back at all to to the sort of the world of stand up um, no not really, I mean sometimes you do I, I haven't really done stand up for sort of like 12 years now and all the shows are just about telling stories whether it's about a campaign to stop dam building in Turkey or whether it's about the right to protest in Parliament Square or whether it's about arms dealing or whether it's about walking the wall you know all of them are, are story shows you know that happens to be performed by someone who was a stand up um, and so I don't really I don't really it's not stand up at all and this is just it's very funny someone described it recently as, as, as someone sent me a tweet saying I'm not sure what it was it might have been theatre performance or, or, or stand up I don't know it's very good anyway so it's kind of I thought well it's, it's, yeah it's the Times critic it's very good so the, um, the do I have an urge to go back to that time just yeah. occasionally you do occasionally you do I was in Australia doing the 
uh, comedy festival, and they say, can you come and do these galas? You know, and you go, well, what are the, my show's about, it's a two-hour-long show about walking the length of the Israeli barrier. So what exactly would you like me to do as the kind of four-minute highlight taster? You can and, wear a uh, funny red nose while you're telling the story, <laughs> maybe. That would be the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, anyone, this is how the, the people were murdered at the checkpoint. No, the, the thing was, they, what I did was I went and did the manifesto things and just turned the manifesto policies that we did on Radio 4 into a little stand-up routine. And actually, I quite liked it. I quite like going back and doing it. And there's a little bit that just, it sort of nips at your heels. Where it goes, yeah, you could do this again. Mm. You could do this again. Do you remember that feeling over 20 minutes where you're just banging out the gags? Getting a laugh here. I want, I'd like another one, please. And another, and another. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is nice. They like me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and, I, and I really enjoyed those. I loved going to places like the Comedy Store uh, in the 80s were really exciting times and all the comics used to gather there and it was like a, a place where they used to assemble in the back bar and you know masses of, of bitching and infighting and whenever someone really good on all the comics would shut up and come and watch and that was great fun or when someone was dying horribly was, indeed uh, indeed indeed <laughs> that was that yes. was that yes yes, yes you're absolutely right Yes, and the sink in the dressing room was the toilet as well, if I remember it was. correctly. I remember oh. thinking that we'd struck a blow for feminism when Kit Hollaback kept the male comics out, <laughs> while Jenny uh, Lacote urinates in the sink. <laughs> I was oh, probably oh. wrong. Yes. So, yes, wonderful, lovely days. I don't, can't see people like uh, Larry and... Uh, Larry and John Gill got discussed. Oh, yes, I remember. Do you know, I think you might be wrong. Do you remember the toiletiers? They might be, you know, they might have been, you might be wrong on that. I did, actually, the one thing that I remember you saying to me one night at the comedy sort of was before a midnight show or something, and I remember you saying something, it was something like uh, somebody was on who was just talking about adverts or something, I can't remember. And I remember you saying, I really love going on at the comedy store. And the, the thing that I really like about going on here is that. I'm, I've actually got something that I want to say, and I think that's that. Uh, sadly, I think that that's a sort of thing that has probably changed now. Is that if you really have got something quite interesting you want to say beyond doing jokes about adverts or talking about a gig you did somewhere else, um, there doesn't seem to be as much room for that on the kind of big mainstream of the comedy. No, I, I kind of slightly disagree with you. I mean, I think there are. Um Yes, perhaps in the mainstream things, but look at the number of comics out there who are just outstanding. You know, people like Kitson, Tim Key, Alex Horn. You know, they're amazing performers, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, if you look at the people who are sort of coming up behind them, there's a whole load of comics who are really doing, in many ways, the, the, the kind of apprenticeship that we kind of did. When you look at uh, people like Chris Coltrane, who's running the Lolitics gig in Camden, which is, I don't know if you know, it's a really nice little gig, room above a pub, and he says invites all the sort of like circuit comics to come and he pays them well and he says the gig is this you have mm. to write political material that's brilliant these people suddenly get to chart to try something out that they don't normally do and his attitude is really exemplary he ran that gig on um on westminster bridge when people squatted the bridge in protest of the nhs and there's a comedy gig happening in the middle of a massive great political demonstration where they squat the bridge mm. opposite the house of uh, parliament with women with a with a bicycle-powered generators, and there's probably about 15 comics up there, young comics who are really excited with something to say, and actually there's masses of comics who are really interesting. 
Johnny Marbles is really interesting. The guy who pied Rupert Murdoch. You know, he is slightly defined by that, but an interesting man and actually a really good comic. And he's got this amazing ability. I lo- well, I, when you see young comics and they've got this ability to make you see something from an angle that you haven't seen before or to, to see a viewpoint that you haven't seen or, or to experience something, that, an emotion that you haven't got to see, that's a brilliant thing because that's what sort of performing an art is all about, which is about getting people to empathise, getting to, to create empathy, to create an emotional change in someone as well as, as an as a instant reaction and an intellectual change or, or just a, a guttural reaction of a laugh. Mm. Anyway, my, my module for the Open University <laughs> is available. I would say, well, in fact, I can, I can do a really good uh, Radio 4 type link here because, uh, you know, a lot of your, uh, a lot of people say with, with comedy, comedy is about, uh, you know, like th- that there's a sort of emotional truth, isn't there, behind uh, comedy and stuff. But uh, um, your shows, there, there, there hasn't, most of the time, there isn't just emotional truth, there, there, hidden truth, there's a, actual facts. Which is a fantastically Radio 4 way for me to now uh, bring Caroline uh, in on this because uh, uh, Caroline is the producer of Horrible Histories. This, this is a show that, that is um, based absolutely entirely on facts, isn't it? It is. We, uh, we try and make every sketch um, true and we try and cram as many facts into each episode as we can, really. Um, well, you know, because you write our songs for us. <laughs> it's the only show that I've ever worked on where um, where something has come back and said, well, you, c- you can say that, you, that that's quite funny, but you can't actually say that because it's not. It's only been verified by one person. So unless it's been sort of verified by more than two or three sources, we can't can't do that. So you've got to lose that joke. And I like the idea the that you're sitting writing a song and you're just waiting for the carbon dating material to come <laughs> in. Yeah, no, I can say that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. we have a we have a researcher who checks all our get brings up all our, does all the research for us to, gets all the facts for us and then checks everything and won't let us make jokes about things if they're not true I mean, could, do you know the, the, the one advantage you do have though is that no one's going to sue you no <laughs> no but I get lots of grief off people people write into the BBC and say you got this fact wrong and we're constantly having to reply to people and that's Greg Greg who's our research is very useful for that because you can say does he do actually I have got sources for this oh absolutely yeah 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 absolutely yeah. it's all very it's absolutely he's a he's a proper historian it's absolutely properly done Brilliant. and we have made one or two mistakes but um over the course of so far four series something like 53 shows that's not bad so far yeah there's just that one thing about germany winning the war <laughs> just by one <laughs> yeah. we got yeah. we got we got george the first and george the second's deaths mixed yeah. up um but we fixed it when we did the prom right yeah yeah. Yeah, that song about Henry the Ninth didn't go down. <laughs> it wasn't so good. <laughs> no. But I mean, if you could just, just just kind of talk us a little bit through the process, how how the show happened, and uh, and and subsequently what's yeah. Uh, so it happened because uh, Richard Bradley at Lion Television, I think his son said to him, "These books are great. You should make a TV show out of them." Wow, um, a show commissioned off the back of a ten-year-old. That, that yeah, really happened. Yeah, yeah. He went and said to his dad, "You should, we, you should make telly out of this." And so oh. he went and found out about the rights and said, "Oh, found out that they were available." So he bought them and then set about trying to get it commissioned. And I think CBBC and Gilchrist, who was the head of CBBC, said it's a great brand, but we have we have to get it right. We have to make sure that the content's right. And uh, so they tried various different versions of it, and in the end. I think Richard bumped into Dominic Brigstock in the street and they knew one another from the BBC and he said, I'm trying to get this thing off the ground and Dominic had a son the right age and knew the books and I was working with Dom and Richard ended up saying, well, what about if we got these two together 
could you know then CBBC said yeah if you get them you can you can have the show so Dom and I spent um a couple of months working up a pitch for it but I mean we sort of looked at the books and just went well this is obviously a sketch show I mean it's we could see what it would be and I'd done a series of dead ringers so I'd been used to doing kind of parodies and songs and those sorts of things and so we drew up this um this brief for it and just because Dom was involved it helped with you know, giving it a legitimacy in, is that a word? In uh, in the comedy world, you had people who, who came from a proper, you know, he, he'd done Amal and Partridge and Green Wing, and it just helped people say, oh, oh, you're making it. Oh, it didn't feel like a kid's show from the beginning. And we always said we wanted to make a show that everyone would say was too good for kids. You know, why why is this on CBBC? That was our ambition. And um, I have to say I'm very fond of Stupid Deaths. Yeah. Stupid death. That was Giles. That was Giles Pilbro's idea, and he, um, and then we gave it to Simon, and Simon just. I mean, he's extraordinary, Simon. And yeah. I think what ended up happening was we got some writers together. We got Steve Punt because I knew that Steve was interested in history, so I went and asked him if he'd like to write on it, and because he's got kids, and the, the brand really helped to, to to bring people in. And we started writing some scripts, and our, we initially we thought that we'd have to we'd do sketches and that they'd be funny and then afterwards we'd explain what the facts were. We had we got together a little sort of mood reel and it was um the stoning sketch from the life of Brian and that uh the leeches that um Blackadder when he goes to the doctor and the cure for everything is leeches. Um and I was saying these things have got facts in the stoning in in the stoning scene you find out that you were stoned for blasphemy and that women weren't allowed to go to stoning. So it it, I said, that's got facts in it. We thought that that was the sort of thing we'd do, and then afterwards we'd say, these are the facts that you've learned from this sketch. But Larry Rickard wrote a sketch about how they took all the signposts down from um, stations, train stations during the war in case of German invasion, so that the Germans, if German spies wouldn't know where they were if they were on the train. Um, and he wrote this really funny sketch about it, which, in fact, we've only just managed to shoot and is going... is. It just went out in the series that's just gone out. And uh, we went, oh, oh, you can have facts in the sketch. It actually works. You can build them in. And I remember Larry writing this one sketch for us about Anglo-Saxon ordeals. And it was, uh, you know, there was one way you had to hold an iron, a red-hot iron bar. And if your wounds healed, you were innocent. And if they didn't, you were guilty and off with the hands and feet. And then there was another one where you had to walk over burning coals or something. There were all these ordeals, you know, ordeal by fire or ordeal by... And at the end it was ordeal by cake. You had to eat a piece of cake and if you choked to death then you were guilty and if you didn't you were innocent. And I said, oh, that's fine, but the punchline's a bit, you know, it's a bit... It's a bit comedy. Cake is such a sort of stupid... Anyway, and he went, no, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) And we were going, oh... Oh my God! History gives you the punchlines. You don't even, yeah, you know. Yeah. It, and so then we realised when we when we made the sketches that you couldn't tell which bits were funny and which bits were true. So then we, that's why we had the signs and we had the rat coming on and yeah. with his little I sign like the rat. saying uh, saying, um, you know, this is true, this isn't true, and uh, and it's just, I mean, history, it is the, the things that people did in history is so are so funny that. We uh, it sort of makes itself really. Yeah. I mean, it's a. Well, it's interesting just just to talk about the sort of getting the the, the team together as well. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the, in the way that the, you know there are so many factors that m- what what makes a show uh, successful, and there are yeah. so many. But I mean, I, I was I was wondering about Larry because he, I mean, he he seems to have written huge amounts, and he's also in it, and he's he. Yeah. So but, the, the mean, writing team. Um, 
the originally it was I asked Steve and Steve's agents suggested Larry and George because they, they have the same agent. So really, Steve's responsible for providing us with Larry. Um, and then I asked a couple of other people. I think John Holmes was involved in the initial pitch of it. So then we got a little group of people together and then afterwards we sort of went and asked lots of other people. I met lots of other people. And Giles Pilbro found out about it through um, the people we'd asked to do the animation. And he came and said to me, oh, I'd really like to write on it. And I gave him the writer's brief and he sent me back a few ideas, amongst which was a cartoon of uh, two Norman knights standing over uh, standing over Harold's body and the arrows in his crotch. And one night, one of the Normans is saying to the other one, when we do the tapestry, should we put it in his eye? <laughs> <laughs> and I just rang him up and said, do you want to come and be my script editor? Because what I needed was someone who could do gags, who could do, you know, could, could help me to make, if, the, if her sketch wasn't quite working, could help me put jokes in it. He turned out to be so much more than that. Um, and Ben Ward I knew from my live and kicking days. Mm-hmm. Ben... Uh, Jez Foster and um, Richie. and Richie Webb had had all been the comedians who took over from Trevor and Simon on, and they're all really involved with Horrible History. So Richie does all our music, and Jez and Ben both write for us. So it was a, what happened with Horrible Histories is it kind of brought together all the things I'd done before, the children's stuff that I'd done, these people that I'd met on Live and Kicking, the writers that I'd met on Dead Ringers, and the music I'd done with Richie on Dead Ringers, and then. You know, jo- and then Dominic, who I'd met on Armstrong and Miller. This was like the comedy Travelling Wilburys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and bring everyone, and then and then because you started off with a, with with great, then we had a couple of really great scripts for the for the castings. People kept coming into the casting saying, "This is really funny." We're like, "I know," but they were going, "But it's a children's show." <laughs> yeah, but we're just making sketches that don't have any no, but swearing they don't in them. Comedy. That's right. They don't mm. deserve it. They, but they only they only like really stupid things. I mean, actually, sorry, I've got no head. Had sort of paved the way for that. Marcus Brigstock and yeah. they said, "Let's just make a sketch show," and so they started it, I think, and, and given it a bit of legitimacy. And that's what, there's that word again. I'm not sure if it's a real word. And and so we once once we started getting people came in for the castings, and we ended up with a really amazing cast. Some of whom we knew. We knew Jim from Armstrong and Miller. Mm. We knew Sarah Hadland before, and we really wanted her to do it. We weren't sure if, you know, if she would, but she was really keen to do it. Um, and then we met Matt and Martha. They were brought in by the casting director, and they both came in. They both auditioned, and they walked out of the room, and we went, book them, please. They're amazing. You know, it's rarely mm. that you find people like that, but they were both really exciting when we first saw them. And they didn't know one another before, and the cast are great friends now. They really... You can sort of tell, I think, from the making of the show that... They just try and make one another laugh all the time, and so it's it has a really great fun feel because it actually is really good fun to make. Mm. I mean, that's one of the things. And if we get get time in, in, in a bit, we'll talk a bit about Dead Boss as, um, yeah. as well. But one of the things that uh, comes through from horrible histories, I think, is is that that it's it's such a team show. There is yeah. so much of a kind of team thing about it. Yeah. And um, again, I want to. Um, I'm not trying to radio fortify this too much, but <laughs> but thinking on the one hand that Mark, like what's the, happened like with the, you? I like the word radio fortify. <laughs> yeah. I That's think good... it's not quite as legitimate as legitimacy. Legitimacy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, well, I shall I shall try and make it currency then radio to radio fortify this podcast a bit more. <laughs> uh, so it was midweek. Always does it anyway. Talking of teams, mm. Mark. Now yeah. you are stand. You come from the world of stand-up comedy, very individual sort of uh, world. But again, thinking about 
before you sort of went down the, the, the route that, that, that you have gone down subsequently, you were very much a sort of team player within the context of, of that's the individuality of stand-up comedy. In fact, there's a, there's a pub about 10 yards from where we Just are now yeah, yeah, yeah. called the Cleveland Arms where we started... We did the first new material. First ever new material nights, 1988. And that was me and Ivor Dembina who had that idea and then we went and spoke to it was your, you and yeah. Jim and Joe Brown and all that night. And, and it was, uh, the idea was that you had to come down with five minutes of new material. And, and there was a lot of crap. You know, but that's fine. That's okay. I think people... It was something like three quid to get in. And we used all the money. We never paid ourselves any money. And we saved the money. And we, we hired a coach and took the, took comedians out to on a day trip to Margate. <laughs> God. What it's a lovely miserable, day trip. A wet, wet, horrible, wet day it was as well. I know, but I, I came away with about a dozen soft toys from the grab yeah. machine. And we had those kiss for quick hats and things as well. It's yeah. amazing the, how, how important those sorts of things are, actually. You know, I always think... It sounds like an excuse to get drunk, but I always think that, a pu- that, that production parties and having yeah. fun together is really, really important. If people feel that they are valued and that they want to, you want to hang out together, actually you make much better mm. stuff together. No, I think you're right. I think there's an interesting thing where, certainly as a stand-up, then when you're doing... Well, we ran these shows and the same happened over in the, uh, with people like Bob Boyton and Mark Kelly when we used to do the electric chair over in... Um, Deptford and New Cross, the, the, there was this idea that we were all involved in the booking policies and that we were all yeah. trying to get people along. And we try and get people like mine. It would be about fun. Yeah. It would just be about sort of, could we create a club that we'd quite like to see? Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly the same thing with the cutting edge, I think, when we did that at the mm, comedy that's store. That's the uh, show that's still going now at the comedy store, about 20 odd years now, the uh, topical, weekly topical. But that's my uh, attitude show. to producing generally. Is, is you've got to have fun. I mean, it's really hard work, so everyone should be enjoying it. And if you and with comedy, if you're not laughing, making it, then I always say my, my job when it's going really well, my job is to sit and laugh at people. And yeah. It couldn't really be a better job, yeah. <laughs> you know, when it's going badly. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's interesting that um, I mean that's one of the things that I think comes through in Dead Boss, which I, I just thought it's a brilliant brilliant show um and it's because it's the first sitcom that i've seen that that is a sitcom that also it's got a story it's got quite a gripping yeah. story going through it and actually you're kind of uh, there's a, narr- a sitcom with a narrative which yeah. you know i mean there have been attempts at that i suppose and there's american shows that have a bit of that but yeah. this really feels like a, it's got a proper story but it's also packed with gags as well and it must be and and, and there's a sense of that you know the ensemble cast as well I know I can't remember there must be about a dozen people yeah, yeah. at least who've who all got parts in this and uh, and in fact something I'd completely forgotten about uh, apparently Holly Walsh was a student of mine as a comedy writer so was she? I had I had no idea about it someone pointed <laughs> it out you taught her me. well I had, uh, must have been about <laughs> 2 hours or something so you know, the success of dead boss is entirely down this to is my down to you teaching. yeah yeah um but um, no I mean, I mean it's obviously a hell of a lot of work's gone into those scripts yeah. but how, how you know again the, what the sort of process that, that well that's that, I mean uh, it's very much Sharon and Holly's show I mean they mm. they created it and they but when I joined they had written nearly all the scripts we then unpicked a couple of storylines and changed a few things around but uh, the, you know it's very much down to them they work incredibly hard and Jeremy Dyson was a script editor mm. and so I came in about three quarters of the way through the scripting process and they already had the story and just 
you know, I mean, hopefully in a quite useful way, gave them a sort of overview of somebody who was new to it, because sometimes you get very bogged down in things, and it's really useful to have somebody come in and read it and say, on first reading, this, these are the things that stand out. Um, and then with the... I mean, Sharon, Sharon and Holly were both really involved with the whole process, so they were involved with all the casting, and they, you know... And Steve Bendelak, obviously, so... Um, we saw a lot of people for that show. Steve, I haven't heard his name for a while. Steve Benderman. He's a lovely show. He used to do Spit and Image, didn't he? He did indeed, yeah. yes. Yes, he's great and he's a brilliant director. And, yeah. and you know. um, a couple of people there who I basically remember doing radio sketch shows with in the 80s. Mm. Uh, Kim Wall and uh, yeah. Jeff McGiven. Jeff McGiven. Seeing them being... Well, he'd, uh, been, in an, he'd been in a couple of Armstrong and Miller Jeff sketches. Jeff McGiven's yeah. a great name. Yeah, he's a great yeah. man. He's very you know, funny. There's, there's a bloke with a trilby. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's brilliant. fantastic, and but um, it and like Joe everybody's... Sargent asked Jennifer, I think, if she'd be in it because she obviously yeah. knew her from from uh, from French and Saunders, and um, and Jennifer loved the scripts, and mm. so she agreed to be in it. And it, it sort of looks like everyone's having a lot of fun. They really it. were, actually. Again, yeah, it was really good fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Steve, you know, has a, has a, likes to run a happy ship, and. Um, and it was everyone who was involved with it really enjoyed it. I think what was weird about it was that was at the rap party for it or the screening party for it. Um, we realised that the people who were in the office bit of it didn't know the people who were in the prison bit of it because we'd shot them separately, yeah. and that was quite odd because they were in this show together and we knew them all because we'd spent loads of time with them all. And they were all turning up and we were saying, "Oh, oh, all right, this is you know, this this is sort of." This is Lizzie who's top dog, and they didn't actually know well, one. You should have sat them around at the table and sort of like, no, don't the no, partners don't sit together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. But um, everyone got on really well. Yeah. It was really nice. And you, you've you've had a sort of a fairly fraught relationship with TV in recent years, have you, Mark? Or it seems, it seems you. I mean, you don't. Your shows don't seem to be on TV so much now, which is a surprise to me because they they've obviously got a very sort of individual sort of. Uh, to to be honest Dave I'm just a bit of a mouthy bastard and I've got the ability to offend people quite easily and uh, I think we got to a point where the shows were being made we did six series and there's like 48 shows we did specials all that kind of stuff and it got to the point where we wanted money for research and we wanted time to make the shows we did a fatal mistake we made one show in three weeks and that was it. And then I would say it's like Stalin's Russia, isn't it? The like story, the war story I remember from history about the man who did the co- did the mining, and they were given targets, and so he worked twenty four hours to to say because people like to be individuals, and then they said, right, that's the new target. <laughs> and that's what I think TV's like. If you can make a show in three weeks, yeah. they go, oh, you can make oh, a show in three it, yeah. weeks. <laughs> so you don't need money, <laughs> yeah. you say, you know. And that would be, and actually, that was really really soul-destroying to suddenly have the budgets cut. And actually it felt... And, and because of the nature of who I am, I think, it, it would, they meant things. They, they, doing the shows were important to me. And it wasn't just a, a question of, I want to make a show good because I want my career to do it. It's like, mm. the issues are important here. This is important. And we did one show which we made where we caught an arms dealer who was... The parent company was a UK company... The uh, subsidiary was in Germany. The exports were going from Germany into Switzerland. The kit was being sent out in kit form to uh, Finland, where a guy was illegally going to send it out to Zimbabwe. Mm. And we had all this stuff. We got it in eight days. Mm. We did this program in eight days. Um, And actually, because we had so little time to prepare, 
we missed this kind of killer email that came in that meant that we actually had four weeks to work on it instead of which we had one week. And it's because everyone was working so hard. Mm. And we did this show in eight days and we brought in the show and it showed these how this thing was happening. And it really was quite exciting. You know, at the end of it, we were doing live conversations into Finland uh, while on a truck outside the Department of Trade and Industry with a telephone and loudspeakers having conversations with the DTI and getting the minister to put his head out the window to hear the live conversations going through. And so it was just this... And, and, and just really exciting to do. But the bloke, we could have done it properly. We could have really done it properly and we could have done undercover filming and we could have ended up with that guy actually facing criminal charges which is what she should have done mm. he should have faced criminal charges and we dropped the ball and that's unforgivable and at that point you just have to go I can't do this anymore I think that's absolutely right the, the, you make the best TV programmes you make not because you're trying to make a mm. hit or because you're trying to make money or you know people think that we're we're making loads out of horrible histories. We make nothing. We make no, no money at all out of horrible histories because it's not our brand and it's a children's show. And you know, it it, it the, the BBC Worldwide still have to make back the money that they invested in it before anyone makes any money out of the DVDs. And also, the DVDs are cheap because they're for children. So it's not that there's, there's no. But it doesn't matter. It's a great project to make. It's incredibly creatively satisfying. And that's when the budgets get cut to such an extent that you can't make something that's creatively satisfying. I agree, I'd, I'd rather not bother making something. It's really, I mean, I, 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 there is a part of me that's very proud that my career's built upon the smell of burnt bridges. <laughs> but there is also a point where you do want to make the best possible thing. Yeah. I was talking to a journalist the other day about the Royal Opera House, yeah. and he was going, it's very odd, because we were working there, and they, did you go upstairs? Where they go, they have, there's a canteen upstairs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah. They go, you go past that dance studio, yeah. and there's mirrors all down two walls, and then glass walls in the other. We were there when we were rehearsing. We were given the corporate dining room to rehearse in, because mm. there wasn't anywhere else. <laughs> and we go upstairs to get our lunch, and they would have the Russian State Ballet. Yeah. In this, and it was just like, oh my god, yeah. this is where we are. This incredible thing is happening thing. right in front of us as we go to get chips, <laughs> you know. And it was just astounding. You stand there in front of the, ro- the, the ballet eating your chips, going, yeah. Yeah, we can eat chips. <laughs> oh, they would eat thousands of them. They would just, it was, uh, but why are you they were like Bradley Wiggins, like that yeah, thing, and they're just amazing. But the thing was, so I was talking to a journalist, and he said, oh, they're very busy, they've got their own department for weeks, you know. And he said it as if it was some kind of mocking thing as if it was something excessive to have a department from wigs. And I did say, look, they are bringing over the top opera singers in the world. Do you expect them to bring their own costume? Mm. I mean, seriously. You know, this is nuts. You have to have production values in things. And actually at the Royal Opera House, the production values they have are astounding. Yeah. And it's the same in telly. When you make things, you have to make it, it to the best possible You thing. do, and it's not... And that doesn't mean that you have to spend loads of money on it, because, again, Horrible History is actually really cheap. Mm. Um, we make a lot out of out of not very much, um, but what we do do we do properly, and that was the thing. You know, you get you get if you get the right people, if you get really good people. I mean, our designer's brilliant, Miranda. She's brilliant, and she makes they and and Phil, who's her her, her partner, they he makes the most extraordinary things. He built us a ship on a hillside. <laughs> we said. We want a sort of just a suggestion of a boat, a sort of side of a boat and maybe a sail, and we'll sort of shoot, we'll work out where. He built us this half a ship on a hill on this farm, and the farmer, apparently the farmer was going to the pub and saying, saying to people, yeah, this bloke called Noah's been round. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and the thing is that what happened was we, the, 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 the cast got in the car from the, from the base and came around the corner, coming up this hill, and they, and they went, 
oh my god, it's an actual <laughs> ship, and everyone is so thrilled by this, by what how brilliant it is, and it, and they, the design department, are proud of it. Everyone made everyone go, oh, we must. You know, do this justice, and mm. we used it. Like, we use it loads. We've we've got our money's worth from it, but it's absolutely worth doing properly. Yeah, and you mm. just, I think it, I think you're right that, that everyone raises their game mm. when you get stuff like that, and they just they wanna they want it to work. Yeah, mm. and that's exciting. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Mm. Do you think your newfound position as the 39th most influential uh, person in British comedy may help you in the future to? This, for those of you who don't know, this is a, a, a survey that was uh, done fairly recently of uh, the 100 most influential people in British comedy. I didn't know that. When did they do that? Did you not know about that? Oh, no. you're, you're the 39th most influential person in comedy. You're, you're, above, you're one above Russell Howard, in fact. <laughs> Russell Howard's number 40, and if I, I remember correctly, I think um, James Corden and if Ruth Jones are 38. If you wanted to hear the sound of someone choke it, you would have told me the numbers <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> Well, I think that's I remember. A, I, I don't know anything about these. Yeah. I don't know. No. I'll try to. I'll try to use my Num- powers. Guess. Who, see if you can guess who number one was. See if you can guess who number one. Well, was. it must have been Gervais or someone like that. No, no, no. 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 <laughs> the most influential person. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think it was someone that I really loved, but undoubtedly it won't be. Um, so I, I, it'll be McIntyre, won't it? No, 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 no. Think out. Think not performer. Think beyond performers. Henry the most Moore. influential. No? no? Henry Moore. No, no, no. No. The most influential performer, yes. but not, uh, not No, not a performer. Person not a performer. Oh, a person in comedy. Yes. Addison Cresswell. You and I both. Would it be Addison? Yeah, yeah. Addison is Cresswell. It? Addison is number oh, one. Oh, my Lord. The cocaine fueled <laughs> gangster. <laughs> Of the past, oh, I think oh, I have to cut that. Bit. No, you <laughs> won't. He was a chemically fueled monster, <laughs> and he's, if he's the most influential person in comedy, it's like Al Capone winning the Lifetime Achievement Award. The man is a shyster from start to finish. He's a thug. He's a bully. He's got the artistic sensibility of a fucking weeto. Um, well, yeah. What do you really feel about him, though, Mark? <laughs> I quite I, like him. I like him. I, I, I do. I mean, the thing I remember. I've got a soft spot for Addison. I have resigned from him twice, so yeah. you know, I'm going to like. I think uh, that anyone who's ever worked for Addison knows that it's sort of uh, when you're not working for him, he's all those things that you said. But when you actually are part of the off the curb uh, roster, there's something he's. It's like you really do feel quite special. Of a very brief period so, when I was a part of it. I should refer to myself as number thirty-nine and call him. <laughs> One, one. It's thirty-nine here. No, the problem. Actually, that's a very yeah. interesting thing because the most influential person in comedy. Very interesting that Addison mm. is um, that that number one figure because his approach was incredibly sort of. Uh, at the time in the sort of mid eighties or early to mid eighties, people were very kind of well, we're going to go on tour with Paul Weller and then Billy Bragg, and then we'll just sell some Labour Party T-shirts. Yeah. And there was that very sort of. You know, collective view of it, and Addison just went, "No, this is a business. This is a business, mm. and we're gonna, we're gonna make sure our people mm. are in control of things." And he took, you know, open mic. He was doing all of that back in the early eighties, yeah. really. Yeah. Mm. And he, I mean, he's a uh, Jesus. I never knew. Where did this poll come out? It's just something I saw on uh, the internet. Something on your comedy guy. Two or three weeks ago, yeah. I think it was released. Hmm. Um, I can't remember who did it. it but who was number 100? Do you remember who was 100? Oh, I can't remember. I wasn't on it. 
I'm not that. Oh, I'll tell you who, what, um, the, the, na- the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the name that was missing that, that surprised me the most, really, was, I mean, there's, you know, there's commissioning editors and comedians and people, but the one, the most, the number one name, I think, is, uh, at the moment, is uh, Rupert Murdoch, really, in a sense, because, in fact, Sky is becoming the, such a big uh, player now in, in, in comedy. In fact, I think you're, you're doing a show, aren't you, with, uh, with Jack D, Jack aren't you? And Creswell. <laughs> um, Jack is, do you know, Jack's a, a he's a brilliant performer. He's great. He's We've had a great time working with him. Uh, he's really interesting. He's such a. What I love is I was listening to. I remember when he started doing. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Mm-hmm. And you just thought, you just stepped into that brilliantly. Yeah, no. How did you do that? And this, well, this show it's is astounding. This is a stand-up show that we're doing for Sky. It's called Don't Sit in the Front Row, and it's, uh, and it's with Jack. How are you finding Alison? <laughs> I don't deal with Addison. Somebody else deals with Addison. <laughs> um, and we've had, had, a, had a cup of tea. There used to be a great game that comics used to play. They used to collect Addisonisms. <laughs> Did you know that? You oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, the boots on the other shoe now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap as houses. Our what cast. Are you talking about? Our cast. I've got it. the Mazda touch. <laughs> that's like a line from Dead Boss. That's the sort of thing that Sharon and Holly write, isn't it? Yeah, our cast call uh, when Dom gives them a compliment on, on they call it a dompliment. <laughs> it's a very unique thing. <laughs> but I think if you if if you wanted to make uh, a good proper telly now, I think um, you know the place the place to go appears to be Sky. Would you would you be comfortable going to Sky? Do you think? Look, I have enough trouble cheering for Bradley Wiggins, <laughs> right, who wears a Sky shirt, and I adore Bradley Wiggins. Uh, would I be comfortable going Sky? Do you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really... S- no. M- but I wouldn't be comfortable really going anywhere. I'm quite happy to do what I do. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I, I tell what we have found, though, is they really, they, they have a policy of leaving you alone and letting you make your shows. That's quite nice. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, that's a deliberate policy that they have, and actually it's... It's, mm. It is really nice. I mean, they, you know, you have execs and you have people who come and make sure. Yeah. But but they're quite. They let the producers produce, and I, and that's, that's an becoming less mm. common. Mm. I think that, that I mean, having done stuff for it in, in the BBC at the moment, and, you know, obviously on Radio Four and what mm. have you, and there is a there is this incredible culture, and I love the BBC. Mm. There's Me incredible too. culture though of. Continual assessment. Yeah, I know. It just goes on, and it's just like I think it's nerves. I think it's people paranoia. nervous that it's they they paranoia. want things to be a success. But the things that are a success, I mean, you know, something like Miranda, which I think mm. people were a bit kind of they didn't really know what it was, and now that it's been a success, they say, "Well, we want more things like that." Whereas yeah. my attitude as a producer is always, "Right, well, Miranda's got that, and it's brilliant. Let's do something different. Let's do something because mm-hmm. the the biggest successes are things that you're not really expecting, yeah. and that are very much authored things. Things that I think comedy, in order to be successful has to have a real point of view so you know the office is a it's a point of view and i always say that you know that that frankie boyle's show you know went down like a like a this is tramadol nights yeah but i'd say i'd much rather have a, have something that goes down really badly than something that people go near you know you'd rather have things that are properly that, that people can properly author that will succeed or fail than have things that are sort of made by committee. No, I think you're right. I think that there's an interesting sort of like some of the, my favourite comedies written by people like Andy Hamilton. Yeah, just very, Brilliant. very idiosyncratic voice. Yeah. A very, very unique way of, of, of... I love what... Whenever he's on, have I got news for you? Oh, you want to see him? Because Andy's absolutely great. He's brilliant. Mm. He's such a nice man as well. Yeah, he mm. is. He is. Mm. I, but that's, I think you're right. There is a, there's a tendency within any organisation, I suspect, 
that they just go that where, where people you know you've been to telly festivals right? I, yeah. I remember going to a couple of telly festivals when I used to do telly and it was just like I remember going up there and everyone was claiming responsibility for yeah. bringing about um, 50 what's it what's it, that one with Anne Robinson you know the one uh, Weakest Link Weakest Link sorry I had a memory thing there yeah. Everyone would suddenly go, oh, of course I was responsible for it. Yes, but I said, oh, I started that. And it was like, yeah. really? Yeah. That's a, a little bit remarkable. of trivia for you. You know who was responsible for it? I do. Former stand-up comedian. Kath Dunning, who I bumped into recently. And, you know, Kath Dunning was a, a comic. Mm. And she never really was that successful. She was a lovely woman, but mm. she'd always, you know, she, she, she just didn't mm. really find her niche. Mm. And, you know, success becomes her. I really was glad of that. I thought that was great. Mm. Really good. But it was yeah. her show. But everyone in telly sort of claimed responsibility, and everyone's yeah. now looking for the new weakest link. Yeah. In the same way as people will now be looking for the new outnumbered or what have you. But, but that, that's but exactly that thing with Andy Hamilton is that out because he's done successful things, people sort of leave him, leave him alone, and let him make his shows. And that's why they're successful because Andy knows what he's doing, and he'll adjust things as he's going. And um, but even I'm, Andy, I mean, I've sort of, he 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 struggles with the whole commissioning yeah, process, yeah. and he he found you know he he, he you know he, even as outnumbered was being was, was being a success. I remember seeing him about a couple of years ago talking to him about it, and he was sort of you know they're still not a bit sure. BBC still aren't quite sure. They weren't sure what to do with it to start yeah. with, were they? It's yeah. a really interesting thing though, because one of the, one of my favourite. Uh, things that has emerged recently is Modern Family Mm. which I've really hugely enjoyed Mm. and it is one of those things that actually it became you know when the box set kind of adrenaline rush that you get when you go can we do another episode Mm. and we're running (laughs) out of time my wife and I will be sitting on the sofa going it's two (laughs) <laughs> we have to get the children up soon. <laughs> and it's so addictive. But what's yeah. brilliant about it is they've taken time. Yeah. They've taken time to get the characters and the actors and the script right and the filming process of it mm. right. Mm. And it really shows. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, even with all of those things, sometimes things go wrong. And similarly, you know, with something like Horrible Histories, a lot of it is, you know, we're... A lot of it fell into place and it, you're lucky and sometimes that chemistry happens and sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, even people who are brilliant make things that don't work. Not everything works, you know. And but the other mm. You can sort yeah. of... The, 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 yeah. You know, there is a kind of philosophy behind the commissioning process, which, which is, well, OK, do we go with this sort of interesting, unusual, quite exciting-looking thing mm. from this unknown person or... Do we go with this tried and trusted person who had a big hit show five years ago? Mm. And you know, the, the, the kind of, especially at the BBC, where there is a definite kind of paranoia about upsetting people. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think in, that's in the all... problem. I think that they, you know, you're whatever you do, people are going to complain that that's mm. the trouble, and because people feel people feel they have an ownership over the BBC, obviously because they pay for it, and so you, it's that. I think the BBC is in a constant dilemma between whether they're supposed to fill. Appeal to the niche, the people who aren't who aren't served anywhere else, or appeal to everybody. It's a very difficult thing well, to. Surely that, yeah. they should sort of do that over the different stations. Yeah, they so should. They have. Yeah. But there was a time when the BBC was essentially an apology unit for Frankie Boyle, and it's just dreadfully <laughs> dull when it gets into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about it because loads of people are going, "You have no need to apologise. Why, why are you doing this? A lot of why apologizing. are you responding to the Daily Mail?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just dull. Mm. And it's mm. people worried about the jobs. Yeah, I wonder if it's always been the same. I mean, you see the, you see the, 
the rejection letter for Faulty Towers and you think maybe it's always been the same. Yeah. <laughs> he just yeah. looks a bit yeah. rose-tinted as yeah. you look back on things. No, I, 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 you're probably right. Marlowe probably thought Shakespeare the safe option. <laughs> the, chase, the King's players, didn't they? Every bloody time I write something interesting, it's too much blood and gore. Oh, is it? Yeah, revenge is... Mm. Shakespeare nicks it and claims that he wrote it himself. <laughs> God. That's been going on for 500 years as well, hasn't it? But, I mean, I, do, I, I think it is... Uh, it, it, it was bad, and it's kind of it has always been that way. But I think when the whole Jonathan Ross Russell Brand thing happened, it, mm. it, it escalated to a new level, and there it was really dead. Did. Well, it, also, it also escalated to a level. That, that it also sort of chimes with the times and the fact that there is this culture that insists that if you say something bad on Twitter, or if you say something bad, yeah. you know, on a forum somewhere, then you have to make a massive po- a public apology for it. And um, and actually, it's amplified through. You know the Express and the Moral Guardians of you know the Daily Mail and what have you, um, and these people can just uh, you know, just just the most awful, awful kind of culture to to breed that you have to apologise for everything. Mm-hmm. You know there are certain things that you do need to apologise for, but you know do it on a one-to-one basis. Mm. Yeah. I mean I think that whole that whole Ross and Brand thing. Um, I mean I think those things happen because. You, 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 people, you know, they sort of people get more and more power, and, and people are nervous of of, prese- of presenters and pr- producers get overridden, and then it gets to a stage where that something like that happens. And all that really should have happened is people should have said, "All right, that there's there's the edge. Let's pull back from there yeah. and make sure that that doesn't happen." Yeah. But, but people are always going been, to push no, against right. boundaries, aren't no, they? No, there should have been someone at the BBC going. It's very important that we have people like this because otherwise, where would we know where the line is? Yeah. Mm. You know, and actually, that's 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 all you need. You just to do. need to go. There's the line. Okay, step back over Seriously, it. We didn't, you didn't need to fire everybody. The woman who's upset is called Satan's slut. <laughs> you know, and, and and that really that should have been it. Yeah. But I think there's also I have to say that I think Addison here mm. had a part to play in this, and the part to play he had was on. I'm Charlie Big Bollocks. Look how much my boy gets. Three million a year. Mm. It's actually probably not three million a year. What Jonathan Ross brought is probably for the production company and mm-hmm. it's probably for, for what the whole thing costs rather than Jonathan's wages. But when you start dabbling stuff around like that, you know, which is showing off really. But that's what I mean. There's a line then, there as well. Uh, when people start showing off about that, then actually the Daily Mail, you know, they're going to respond. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. They are going to respond to that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think that that's the problem with people like Addison is the power that they have within yeah. the corporation to, or the power they have in the industry to demand certain figures and certain... And it uh, means that I end up having to do loads of really tedious online um, online quizzes before I'm... To, sort of compliance quizzes <laughs> before I'm allowed to produce something. Well, I, I had to do one because I, I was making a, a documentary, yeah. uh, just a sort of mild comedy documentary on Radio 4, in, at the time the whole thing was going on mm. and having gone from uh, just, just and my, and my producer is brilliant and he's always just said if I've ever asked him something that I want to do that he's not he, he thinks there might be a problem with he just says to me well you didn't tell you haven't told me that you just go away and do it anyway mm. but, but after this happened he said now if you know that if you want to do anything like that, anything like this that you've got to tell me I've got to tell my boss he's got to and this was all this stuff that was put in place straight after the Jonathan Ross and then I had to take this producer's 
test mm. from the BBC. Yeah, yeah. I was you got to do a test. Just presenting online. a show about you know it's a yeah. silly documentary really, and I had to and ask these questions. You know, you're producing, you're the producer of uh, Any Answers on Radio Four, and there's been uh, there was a big uh, Palestinian story or something on on uh, Any Questions the night before, and uh, you've got four, you've got ten calls have come through on the Saturday, and and uh, nine of them are all in favour of one thing, only one the opposite. What what do you do? Well, it's quite an interesting question, but why are you asking me, you know, for God's sake? And but I, I think when I was working on... I remember when I was working on Live and Kicking, there was definitely a sense that if I made a film and somebody complained about it, my sort of... my editorial judgment was based on for me it was based i always said i had this thing where i said if i if someone complained to me and i wrote them a letter back and my letter ended up in the daily mail would i look like a twat <laughs> and if the answer was no then i'd do it <laughs> and that's still my policy that's, that's quite a good um, <laughs> but i used to definitely feel that i had to answer if a complaint was made about my film i personally would have to write a letter back to them now there's a whole unit at the BBC to do it. Funnily enough, I no longer feel as responsible for the things that I do because there are so many checks in place. I don't feel like I have to have the same editorial judgment that I used to have. So in a weird way, as a producer, they've taken the responsibility away from people who could make that judgment we in the first place. We used to place. do this thing whenever people wrote in and complained. We used to write a little note back. Hmm. It was just, it was dear so-and-so, Thank you very much for your letter. Unfortunately, Mark can't reply to himself, but he wants you to know he thanks all the thousands of fans without whom he could never make this programme. He knows how much you need him, and he knows how much you care, and it matters to him. Thanks. And just whatever happened, that would be the standard response. And it was essentially, fuck off. Yeah. And actually, there's, there's a certain thing about that where you were... There was, um, there was a guy famously for Saturday Night Live who used to... The guy put in charge of complaints... When, you know, this is Belushi and Aykroyd and all of those guys. Mm. And he, he was put in, as NBC, who put him, he was in charge of complaints. And his letters were quite famous because he said, Oh, I know how you feel. I've been <laughs> saying these things for ages and they just won't listen to me. I try and influence them, but there's nothing I can do. Honestly, the letters you send in really are a godsend. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you feel liberated then by that? No, I don't. I feel, I think it's sad. I think it's. I think all those people whose job it is to keep an eye on me when I can keep an eye on myself um, and if you're properly trained and the BBC gives you brilliant training then people should learn to be responsible for the, for mm. the programmes they're putting out and I actually think it's a shame I think, I think There's also know. a thing about the BBC which is really interesting which is actually the BBC should just stop listening to the kind of tabloid echo chamber and just mm. go, do you know we've got this amazing reputation yeah. we have got an incredible lot of reputation I was in I was in uh, a few years ago. I was in uh, southern India, and there was a case of uh, a Coca-Cola factory that has subsequently shut down. Mm. And the villagers were complaining and saying the groundwater has been depleted since they started extracting the water. They had this protest. Load all the this was the the, the Dalits, the mm. people at the bottom mm-hmm. of the caste pile, and no one really paid them any much attention. BBC Face the Facts went out and did a documentary and they replayed it overnight. Yeah. Overnight that situation changed. Mm. Yeah, the BBC's an amazing organisation and most of the people in it you know, work really hard and try really hard to get it right and yet weirdly as an organisation it seems to be really flaky. It's a very mm. odd, it's a very odd balance. I just, you know, it, it apologises the whole time and yet, and yet I think 
most of the time it gets it gets most things right. Mm. And most of the people end up, for instance, the whole commissioning process at Sky TV now is done by Lucy Lumsden and Stuart Murphy, yeah. who who were the main commissioners at the BBC. Yeah. I'd so. argue even when they get things wrong, the, the, the things they get wrong, like Ben Fogel, it's not that, you know, any employment of him, <laughs> which is just, you know, sad, but not a tragedy. Mm. I think there is, yeah, there, 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 there are there are a few things I get wrong, but uh, it, it, the, the the things that the problem is, as you say, you know, e- each of us has actually spent our money on it, and you know, I mean, the, yeah. uh, someone sits on what, and and, and we know with, with comedy much more than drama, you know, you can watch a drama show and just go, oh, this is a bit boring, I'll switch over, but you're watching a comedy show, you're not enjoying, you just go, what makes you furious? <laughs> Why did they think they could? call that a comedy show this isn't funny mm. and the, the next sentence yeah, without of course remembering that comedy is entirely subjective well exactly but the, ne- the next the next sentence is always you know i didn't pay my license fee for that no, but i think the license fee the sailing by is worth the license <laughs> fee <alone. laughs> well that's it and i think you know you, you only need one program a year that you enjoy and that's you know it costs a lot more than 140 quid to make and so you get your value for money and but also the people that it trains and the people that you know what it does for the industry as a whole i mean i just it makes me shudder to think it might ever go whenever i go abroad anywhere i i think god our television's brilliant isn't it and you're right about the training because the level of training that people get from you know not just producers yeah. and actors scriptwriters and all that but the whole sort of technical teams yeah. and, and the news is just, the news department is mm. quite phenomenal. Yeah, no, it is. It makes mm. me sad that TV centres close. Closing them. I got upset when the Paris studio shut down. Do you remember that on oh, Regent yeah. Street? Yeah. This lovely little recording studio down yeah. there. Mm. And whenever you used to do shows down there, you always used to get sort of like, the front row would be full of about five homeless people who'd come in just to, <laughs> <cut the kids laughs> just to get out of the rain. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. <laughs> so the grand <laughs> Your comedy career was built on the yeah. backs of these five homeless people. <laughs> well, I remember many, many years ago, Jeremy Hardy doing a pilot down there for some uh, comedy consumer radio show. And he was saying that they had to, they had to stop the recording uh, on a couple of occasions because... The, the, the snoring of the, of the homeless people was so loud that it was interfering with, with the uh, programme. I couldn't work out what this sound was. While they were, uh, I love the idea of you lot doing your stand-up <laughs> and a load of homeless people just He tells the asleep. story in a charmingly no, self-deprecating be, way about how unfunny this comedy show was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, you'd, you'd just hear this rustle of plastic bags when everyone of those shifted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a sort of a, um, early version of library, really, wasn't it, I think, down there. But it was also the place where they did sort of a main... There was a historical thing there. Oh yeah, some of the great, all the gang show and all the sort of goon shows and stuff was done there, mm-hmm. and the the World Service, which closed uh, last week, I did, yeah. used to do a program there called the Treatment, a weekly uh, topical show, which was uh, it's very very sad that the that place is gone because that that Bush House to me sort of and the World Service kind of sums up the sort of for me the brand of what the BBC is and yeah. how it you know the, all the kind of the very best There's things a very about interesting BBC. thing about just the very architecture of it, which is when you see buildings like Bush House. Indeed, when you see sort of old libraries and there is a sense of civic pride, of municipal aspiration mm. that says this is where we aspire to. Mm. And just the very architecture of the building. Mm. No, that's yeah, but true. The, the way the BBC TV centre is designed is really clever and the studios and the way that the studios are set up. 
it's a really brilliant brilliant design they're set up so that every single studio has access to the to the to the ring road so that you can get your sets delivered and yet they're also on the other side connected to all the inside of the bbc and the way that the galleries are laid out and it's just incredibly clever i do hope that whoever you know takes over will keep some of the studios running well, they've just announced the detail of the oh, <coughs> sales um studios and worldwide will be moving back in Oh, uh, 2013-14. Oh, so Worldwide's going to be at TV Centre? Yeah, Worldwide's going to be uh, the front. So In the news block? At the yeah, video. yeah. Um, and, and they're going to uh, keep the studios they, running? Well, yeah, they will be presumably refurbishing the studios yeah. over the next two years. And then BBC Studios will be moving back in. And then the rest of it's going to be flats, is it? Uh a mixture of leisure, hotel, residential, and they want to make it a creative hub as well. I went to see a friend of mine in Liverpool. I went to see a friend of mine in Liverpool. She bought this flat in Liverpool, and I went in to see her. And I, went, I said, "Hang on a minute." I used to work on this morning. I said, "I'm sure this is makeup." <laughs> and she lived in part of what used to be the old Albert Dock Studios. It was really <laughs> weird, but that would be. There's a ho- there's a there's a hotel, isn't there, where part of the BBC, where the f- where the where the f- on Lime Grove, oh, yeah. where all mm. the documentary makers used to be, and they turned it into a hotel. And people say they go in there, and it's their old office, and it's somebody's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Very spooky. Though mm. so you heard it first on this podcast, but probably by the time it goes out, it'll be old news anyway. But yeah. uh, just just be- before just uh, wrap up, I, mean, I know you're at the. Uh, we mentioned that you're at the uh, Travis. Uh, Theatre Mark. Now, what I vaguely remember of the Traverse is that you're on at sort of six in the morning one day yeah. and two p.m. the next day. So, yeah. so we can't um, say exactly That's what time. That's a nice thing, though, because it means no performance, no show gets star spot. It means everyone shares yeah. the best yeah. slots, and it means the local audience get to see everything because it's on at a time that they can find mm-hmm. to go and see it, which is a really good thing. It also means as a performer you get to see loads of other things and you can go... Yeah, you don't, you don't get st- stuck in a rut uh, with yeah. the same thing every and day. And one, I'm really pleased, because one, uh, on a Sunday, I've got uh, a gig at 10 o'clock in the morning, which means I'm finished at 11. I'm not wanted till Tuesday at half past eight in the evening. So me and my mates are cycling along the coast to Newcastle, so it's quite, oh, it's quite wow. nice. Quite, nice. It's quite civilised. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. And what's the dates that you're doing the show? Third uh, to the twenty something seventh, possibly. Right, and it's called Bravo Figaro. Yes. Right, and is it? Uh, it's just you. You haven't got the opera singers with you, have you? Maybe. I don't uh, want to give anything away. Do ah, I'm okay. Being slightly coquettish. You're being, you are being a little bit coy there. Well, I may have to. I'm going to try and see it myself when yeah, I'm up well, in Edinburgh for fourth and fifth of August myself. I look forward to seeing you. Mm. Mm. Uh, Sorry, I'm just uh, you were talking there over my attempt to not plug oh, my sorry. own show. That's on. When are before. you on, Dave? Yes, Dave. When am I? Oh, funny show, you should mate. ask um, that, actually. Because um, this is the thing. You've facilitated yeah. such a lovely conversation. <laughs> and I feel we've monopolised the plug time. So tell us about yours. Uh, thank you, thank you, Mark. It's uh, it's on the fourth. I'm only doing two days, and it's actually free. I'm doing the fourth and fifth uh, of August uh, at the uh, the Hive. Is it the Hive? I think it's called. Uh, and um, and also, Caroline is going to be up there. You're doing your horrible histories masterclass. Aren't we you? are yeah. for the television uh, festival, but it's not it's not ticketed. It's yeah. uh, I think that's uh, you know, and if you're at the festival, we're coming up to do a 
I don't know what we're doing but yet. I haven't, you know. I haven't quite worked it out yet. <laughs> have, has, have you had other people at the festival claim that they're responsible for horrible history? <laughs> Not yet. Uh, yeah. Actually, I was... Uh, I, I am ter- Dave's I'm Terry Deary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was me that actually put yeah. forward the piece of paper to the commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. And thank you to Daniel, Daniel Kaner, who's also going to be in Edinburgh, funnily enough, with his uh, show. You doing, is it Jewish Chronicles you're doing? Uh, yeah, the Jubador this year. Oh, the Jubador, right. Nice <laughs> uh, so nice uh, Daniel name. Kaner oh, is thanks. doing his show as well at the... Uh, uh, the Moon Night Club, 415, 3rd to the 27th. Right, OK, got every right. Aaron's the only person in the room who's not going to Edinburgh this year. You are uh, that one person yeah. in the old punch cartoons. <laughs> you know, who <laughs> did something... You're the man who put mustard on his venison, and we're all looking at you. The man who's not got a show in Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Good> dismissed. <Lord. laughs> Aaron dismissed. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Caroline. Caroline Norris. Thank you very much, Mark Thomas. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Aaron, as well. And uh, that has been What Are You Laughing At? A British Comedy Guide. I'm Dave Cohen. Speak to you again soon. Bye.